0: Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining. I don't care with me, Dr. Kevin Stevenson. I get the chance to talk with healthcare leaders and leadership and management experts from literally all over the world. And today is no exception. So if you're a healthcare geek like me, you probably get Oh, five to seven, e-newsletters a day from Becker's Healthcare. You know, I get I get the hospital review, I get CEO review, I get CFO review, even though thank goodness I'm not the CFO Uh, and so and lots of others because you know, whenever I need healthcare news, I go straight to Becker's Healthcare. And wouldn't you know, I've got Scott Becker, the founder and publisher of Becker's Healthcare with me today. Scott, thanks for joining me on I Don't Care.
1: Well, Kevin, thank you so much for having me and what a great show title and can't wait to get a chance to visit with you. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you, sir.
0: And thank you. You know, not only the, the e-newsletters, you know, your platform has so many different great ways for healthcare leaders to connect. You know, I got the chance to come to the annual conference just a couple of months ago. Fantastic. You know, really loved, you know, you, you got you guys do it up You've got great breakout sessions. You know, I really enjoy hearing Mark Cuban talk about his story and Cost Plus Pharmacy and everything else. Tremendous things! I can't wait. I'm actually coming back in November to the CEO uh, CFO Roundtable. Can't wait for that. So, so Scott, thanks for doing what you do. How did it get started?
1: Sure. Well, it started like many different businesses and ideas for totally different reasons. I I, I started Becker Healthcare. 30 years ago, you know, I'm a lawyer by background as a lawyer by background. And I was trying to build a legal practice. So when I started this 30 years ago, it was really intended as a branding concept back in the day, or now they would call that thought leadership, sure. it's a thought leadership platform. And, and, and I started doing this newsletter and some conferences just on a relatively small scale. Mm-hmm. And then what really happened was about eight to 10 years into it. It was clear that it wasn't just a legal sort of marketing or branding thing, but that it could be a real business and a real opportunity to visit with lots of people uh, on a totally different scale. And at that point, I started hiring full-time people into the company and and into sort of leadership positions and, and sort of built a team. And then we grew, you know, much, much more significantly and into a media company versus a legal branding or or sort of branding effort. And that was really the evolution of it. It goes back to, you know, literally 30 plus years ago when one of our conferences in our 31st or 32nd year, but it was really eight, the first eight to 10 years were really not anything like what it is today. And and then we really started to grow. We, about 20 years ago, we expanded into the hospital sector and the orthopedic and spine sector, like 10 years ago into health IT and digital health. But it, it was it was about 20 years ago that was the first big sort of transition where it moved from being one thing into really being a into a media effort, into a media company. And it's okay. been great fun and great, great. I've had great um, you know, partner leader, Jessica Cole, who joined me when she was in college, has been with me for about 17 years now, was really an instrumental leader in that whole transition and transformation from one thing to another. And it, it, it's really been fascinating and great fun.
0: You know, and and one of the things I really appreciate, you know, I've been doing this for about 35 years myself, been in a lot of different states, a lot of different uh, systems and hospitals. And what I really enjoy on the on the hospital review is just seeing, you know, you kind of do, you know, leaders on the move kind of thing. You know, we get to I get to see, you know, where some of my friends have landed, you know, and and so that's that's a fun thing for me. Uh, but uh, but it also one of the other things that I really like, you know, the compilation of lists that you do, you know, noted leaders in a wide variety of areas, and you know I always like to go through there. Of course, I'm checking off people I know and friends that I have, but but it's also great for me because you know if, if I have an issue at my hospital or if we're trying to build a service line, I can find somebody on one of those lists that I can make a call, and you know people in healthcare we like to help each other. And so, uh, yeah, that's something that that I really appreciate that you do. Well,
1: no, no, thank you. And there's there's multiple different pieces to that, and I appreciate that very much. You know, part of this is, it, it's a, it's fostering the development of a community. Before that was sort of part of journalism. I mean, we really viewed it as a, a, a few different core concepts. One is we adapted to short-form journalism a very long time ago, and, and it really ended up being what audiences really want, by and large. There's people that still want deep, longer pieces, but people don't read us for that. They don't read us for really deep medical guidance, and we know we're not that. They, they yeah. read us to sort of understand here's what's going on. Are things going, are getting better or getting worse? What are the big problems? What are the big issues? We also view it as, you know, the community concept. If anybody ever went to camp, there's nothing that anybody looks for in a camp newsletter other than somebody's name. What's going on? What's happening? You know, you know who did what, and so we, you know, and that's part of this community concept of trying to be part of the the core community. And, and people want to know what people are doing and what's going on. We try not to be, you know, we're trying not to go out of our way to be negative on people. We're we're looking to be sort of, uh, you know, with people in the community, really. And 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 we've loved it. We've loved it. But it but it goes back to a couple of those core concepts: short form journalism really building constantly a community around it and and highlighting people and what they're doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's really great. And and another big aspect of this too, that I, uh, that I like to look at through, through all of the platform uh, concepts are, you know, your trends. I love hearing, you know, your thoughts and the thoughts of your folks, you know, what's going on in healthcare now. And, and, you know, you really point me to some great articles but but I like y'all's takes on thing, on things too. So so let's get into some of that. You know what are the stories? What are the trends that that Becker's Healthcare is following now? And, and really, let's go back. You know this entire year of twenty
1: twenty three. Sure. So I would say there's several stories that are clearly top of mind. I mean the um, you know the, the disparity between payer power and strength and health system power and strength. It's just an evolving and big issue. Uh, Provider hospital health system costs are going up. One of the big things we'll talk about in a second is there's just not enough doctors, there's just not enough clinicians. Health systems costs are going up, reimbursements not going up. You've got more and more different parties picking off profitable parts of healthcare whether it's private equity whether it's insurance companies whether it's CVS whoever it might be there, there's a, a lot of people vying for the healthcare dollar and at the end of the day if covid proved nothing else you know before covid as you know there was this big effort throughout the country to reduce the number of hospital beds people would say we need to the right size amount of hospital beds and and what's really happened is between the loss of nursing home beds between covid it's become clearer and clearer. that In addition to health systems being elite and great academic medical centers and elite and great providers of the best care, they're also the country's safety net for health care. Right. And, so, and so when you look at these things and the challenges with margins, challenges with reimbursement, challenges with staffing, challenges with everything, you're really in a very fascinating spot as to how do health systems emerge through this? How do they grow through this? Right. You know, you're know, you with a major system, more and more people want to go with major systems, but 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 being a major huge system is not the be all and end all. You still need to have market strength in markets. You still need to be very good at what you do. Um, and some of the mid size systems are thriving very well. And sometimes it's easier mm-hmm. for them to control control cost. The other thing we're seeing is some of the large systems transition as much as possible to a capitated book of business, a value-based book of business. We see that with Intermountain. Mm-hmm. And then the, the last trend I think about constantly is, and, and it's not always popular. What I say here is that medical education was built pre-internet and we need to figure out a way to turn out more doctors quicker. And I quite frankly think that is very, very achievable. Right now it's four years of medical school, after four years of college, plus four years of residency and often a fellowship. We need a lot more specialists in a lot of areas. And it shouldn't take eight to 10 years to turn one out post-college. It just shouldn't. It was built on a memorization concept. The, the med school curriculum was largely built pre-internet, and, it, and it's outdated. And it's it, it wasn't really a disaster because we turn out very good doctors. It just we do so very inefficiently, and we need more of them. You talk about in the specialty areas, you know, there are a lot of areas where primary care can be supplemented by PAs, by nurse practitioners, by a lot of things together with a lot of technology specialist, it's much harder to train you know, somebody who's not a doctor to do a lot of the specialty stuff. And in the specialty areas, we all know that if you need the right specialist in the right area, you almost always have to know somebody today. And that's a disastrous situation. That's just a horrible situation. So when I come back to there's all these different issues but but very high in the list is we have a million doctors for 330 million people. Those doctors are being, you know, are being bought up so that big parties can monopolize those doctors, and that just is a disaster for all of us. In my in my perspective, it's really a, a horrible situation. So no, I totally to... agree.
0: Yeah, I was going to say yeah, you know, and and I I totally agree with you on uh, particularly primary care. There are there are plenty of of middle-level practitioners that could supplement that. But what we're seeing, you know, particularly in Texas, the Texas Medical Association, and I've got a lot of friends who, who are very involved in that and on the board, but, the, you know, they, they're, they're trying to keep a handle on the physicians providing the care. When you look out in, in West Texas, and I've been in other more rural states as well, that, yeah, you, you've got counties that don't even have physicians, uh, you know, and it may only be five or 10,000 people, but they still deserve health care. And so why can't you get a nurse practitioner or a PA out there in remote locations to provide that, you know, at least primary care?
1: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's an incredibly challenging situation. And the rural communities can't survive without health care being somewhere accessible. You just can't mm-hmm. do it. It's uh inner cities, rural communities, without it. and we can't do it without producing a greater number of doctors. There's enough people that want to go to med school. There's often enough people that want to go to nursing school, and, but we don't have enough nursing faculty. The med school, 50,000 people apply, 20,000 get in. By the time we're done with residencies, we turn out about seventeen to 18,000 doctors a year. It's just not enough for a country with 330 million people. It just doesn't work. The math right. doesn't work.
0: Right. Well, and something that you said, too, you were, you were talking about, you know, w- everything looks at the pandemic and how that's changed everything. But prior to the pandemic, we were still having the, the physician shortage and the nursing shortage. And it, the pandemic has just exacerbated that. And, and I know, you know, our facility and other facilities, you know, throughout, throughout Texas, uh, but throughout the country, yeah you know, are are really having incredible difficulties having to close beds having to to skinny back services because we can't find nurses and other clinicians to take care of patients
1: and, and that's something we're seeing throughout the country. And there's this great mix of haves and have-nots in healthcare, of course. There's some big systems that are opening hospitals. There are tons of places, closing operating rooms, closing labor and delivery, you know, all kinds of things we very much need, but we're having trouble finding the resources to provide and keep open. So, no, it's it's a real challenge. And I think the, the staffing challenges, I mean, a lot of stuff gets supplemented by technology, but it, it doesn't replace... You know, it doesn't replace physicians, nurses, clinicians, It supplements. And the other thing that you're seeing is we've got a rebound because there's not enough doctors out there, specialists, primary care, anything. You've got a rebound of emergency departments being overloaded again because there's no place else for patients to go. You know, and so yeah. you see a lot of that throughout the country, too. And it's, it's a really daunting situation. And, and even like where, where there was approval in one of the bills for 4,000 more residency spots, but because nothing's done on a bipartisan level in congress that was put into some major bill that didn't get passed and then you end up with sort of this debacle because congress and the white house can't agree to stuff one off and everybody knows that we need those residency spots and that's just a drop in the bucket we really need Mm -hmm. to double the number of residency spots but at least it's a starting point
0: yeah absolutely well i think it was today in, in one of the newsletters you you had the the, the list by state of potential rural hospital closures. And of course, you know, my state here in Texas, we're leading it with over 80 hospitals at risk for closure.
1: What do we do? It, it, no, it's a, it's a horrible, horrible situation. And obviously a lot of those are small, remote critical access hospitals, and they might be small, remote critical access hospitals, but, but largely they're needed. Largely, they're needed, you know, I, I, I you know, and, and it, it's, uh, and many of them are very high quality providers for what they provide, and they're very much needed. And it's both an issue of funding, but even with funding, you can't fix it without staffing. So you could try mm-hmm. and fund all you want, but there's a limited number of doctors and nurses out there. And as the big parties gobble those up, there's just not enough to go around. You've got you've got lifestyle choices going on too. More and more in the residents. If you went back a generation ago, and I'm probably around the same vintage as you are. Uh-huh. You know, all kinds of people went out to smaller towns, mid-sized towns. They came back from either the army or they came back from wherever, and they went to small towns, mid-sized towns, and and they were you know and now you know, there's there's been a huge move of people, including the professional class to the bigger metropolitan cities. Right. And it's left the smaller cities, the smaller communities with less and less resources. You know, I mean, I, I even look at a family like mine, we were cousins throughout all of rural Illinois and almost nobody's still in rural Illinois. Everybody's now in big cities someplace or another. And it's it's the same thing with uh, doctors and nurses and so forth. And it's a, it's a really challenging demographic issue and um you know we always solved it at least historically through lots of immigration through lots of bringing in doctors from other countries and we still do that and that's still so important from a doctors and nurses right. perspective and clinician's perspective we need more of that and we just need to produce more doctors too and produce more nurses too and, and obviously us bringing doctors in from other countries the the flip side to that is if you look at this from a world perspective a global health perspective not just a u.s perspective mm-hmm. our gain is somewhat of a zero-sum game because if a doctor's right. coming from a different country we're gaining them they're losing them so you're not really helping from a global health perspective so it may be something that helps us here in the u.s you know, and 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 that people get all kinds of different opinions on that people want to immigrate here for for all kinds of reasons mm-hmm. but at the same time we have to just on net net produce more doctors, nurses, clinicians. There's just no way around it, given the age and growing population.
0: Now, and, and something that you touched on, something else, you know, the physicians, nurses, clinicians want to go to the bigger cities. Well, the, the definition of the bigger city is, is changing. I mean, I'm in a city right now of about 175,000, and our ability to recruit here is uh, greatly constrained. You know, we we sit between Dallas and Fort Worth and Austin, two huge growth markets. Both of them well over a million people in you know the community. You know, you got Dallas, Fort Worth, the metro, the metroplex is is right at seven million. Austin now is about a million five. You then you've got San Antonio about the same size, but then you've got we've got Houston down the road. You know, f- about 6 million people. So here we are, a town, you know, most people would say 175,000, that's a pretty decent-sized town. And we're having ch- huge challenges.
1: And, and that's part of what's going on through the entire country's demographics. Mm-hmm. More and more people going to these big cities. And what happens is the smaller towns and smaller cities used to have this terrific reimbursement advantage be able to get paid out of network or they get paid higher fees by payers and so forth because there was a shortage of physicians and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, and what's really happened over the last decade is the payers have become so powerful that there's, you know, you used to see smaller communities advertise. You're going to make 200000 more a year here, have a great lifestyle, so you should come here. And, and those deltas are just not there anymore. If anything, they've gone the other direction because now if a community itself is not, is not Effluent or wealthy there's not enough money flowing around the community for the hospital the health system for the doctors everybody to make a living so you end up really more and more with just all of the doctors the nurses the clinicians are all bunched around the bigger metropolitan areas and it's uh Mm -hmm. you know it's it's very daunting in smaller communities it's daunting day to day and it's tremendously daunting in emergency situations
0: right and, and I think, you know, Scott, I don't know if you'd agree with me or, or not on this, but I think there's a generational shift, too, because, you know, I'm looking at, and again, a, a community with an aging uh, an aging medical community uh, where our average age is, you know, probably 53 or 54. So I'm, a, I'm getting a little bit concerned about who's going to take care of me when I finally retire. Uh, but, you know, those guys... You know, they're the ones that are put, You know, still putting in, you know, 16, 18 hours a day, you know, willing to take call on you know, on a three in one basis, whatever. The generation coming out of medical school, they're actually looking for a, a quality yes. of life and a limited, you know, they don't want to work that that those long hours They you know, they want to you know, do their clinic. They, you know, maybe see a few patients in the hospital and that's it.
1: Well, and this is demographically just really what's going on. By the time physicians are 40 to 45, just 10 to 12 years after they're done with residency fellowships, you've got some number, like half, are moving towards some reduced schedule. And and, and there's nothing wrong with that. That is something we need to allow people to do. But it, but it speaks to the gap we have. So we've talked about the gap of a million doctors for 330 million people, and that, those numbers are growing in the in different directions. The 330 million is growing quickly, the 1,060,000 is not growing at all. So what happened because you got 18,000 being matriculated each year at a residency or something like that, or in a med school, and, and probably that many retiring every year. So you've got a situation where the, the problem is compounded by exactly what you just said. If you had a generation of entrepreneurial doctors that were willing to work 70 hours a week, they, they didn't grow up with much, they came out of the army, whatever it was, whatever it is that drove that mindset, you now have a generation of doctors that are coming out that have been much more, you know, you know. if, if my father never saw the kids, I wanted to make sure I saw the kids. It just is yeah. what it is. And it's the same in a lot of families, it's the same throughout the demographic. But the reality is it means that ratio of hours needed, of, of, of patient care needed, Mm-hmm. compared to number of doctor hours available is it, shrinking every year because more and more of the doctors are, aren't working like that, which is which is absolutely great. We just need a national recognition that if a good percentage of the doctors are gonna work part-time and we need doctors, then we need more doctors. You know, right. just, it just, it just, it's, it's really the simple math is 330 divided by a million, but, but the real math would go into how many hours are needed And if you got that million working on average less hours than they used to, then you don't need, you need, if they're working 20% less on average, then we need a million two doctors just to stay even. Yeah. You know, but you're absolutely right. And there's no, it's not even like you can't even, it's not even, it's not something that's arguable. It's true. I mean, it's true that on average, more and more doctors hitting 40 are working part time or some reduced schedule, which is great, but we need enough doctors to fill those hours. Yeah, doctors,
0: nurses as well. Same thing, hundred so, percent. So, yeah, so so we've we've talked a lot about staffing. What are some other areas that that you're seeing, you know, some significant trends changing in uh, in healthcare?
1: Yeah, and I wouldn't say there's 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 the core blocking and tackling, the coming back to systems now either systems trying to move towards more capacity like intermountain is and kaiser permanente that's one example but there's also the the rebounding back to everybody needs oncology care and everybody needs cardiovascular care everybody needs orthopedic care you know if you went pre-pandemic and in the fear for service world systems were very focused on the five to six specialties that really drove the dollars in health systems Mm -hmm. and and for a period of time i think the eyes been taken off that ball Uh, But I think health systems, as they look again at margins and at trouble and so forth, are again focusing on where is it that we could do care, provide care, do what we need to do and pay the bills too. So you've got more and more, every health system that didn't have one, is building a cancer pavilion and not good nor bad not a value judgment there's so much cancer need there's so much oncological needs yeah. so there's a real need that lines up with it but it's also a place where there's still money in the specialty but it comes back to do you have enough doctors enough oncologists enough radiation oncologists enough right. everything to, to make that all go sending orthopedics everybody needs their knee replaced or joint replaced or arthroscopy mm-hmm. at some point if they're staying active at, at some point and so the systems doubling down again on those areas We've got just a lot of different things like that where people are dumbing back to those things. Then you've got a percentage of systems really trying to get out in front on whether it's virtual nursing or AI driven type things. Or, or I, I've heard sort of the healthcare technological innovation talked about in two different ways. One way is things that supplement and help leverage a doctor or nurse or clinician. Mm hmm. And those would be things like telehealth. Telehealth yeah. doesn't replace a doctor, but it might make a doctor's job easier because here or she doesn't have to be in a certain office all day, all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like in the old days, teleradiology was the first area and it really grew out. of We couldn't get radiologists out to rural communities. So teleradiology evolved. Mm-hmm. So, so telehealth, virtual health are things that supplement the current doctor population. They help. Mm-hmm people talk about the next level of thing is at what point do you develop technology or AI that takes it a whole step further that replaces the nurse or doctor, that, that at least replaces a lot of what they do. And so in some hospital systems are now experimenting with the robots, you know, robots mm-hmm. that actually, not robotic surgery, which is, you know, well well long, but doesn't replace a doctor at all, but is used by a doctor as, as a tool. Mm-hmm. But you've got robots in some systems that they're using as test pilots to replace nurses. Just you know, it's almost like the automation you see every place. Is is yeah. there a way to do this with relying less on the four to five million nurses we have in our country? And I think mm-hmm. those technological innovations. And it's hard for systems. It's a big investment to try these things, but some of them view it as they absolutely have to do it. They have no choice. And and again, it's like the bigger systems have an easier time. Taking the chance on investing in some of these things, then there's a small critical access hospital or a surgery center.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know whenever I was at the uh, the annual meeting uh, recently, it seemed like every breakout session with, was either talking about AI or consumerism. I mean, it was that that yeah. I think that was the theme. Am I right?
1: Well, it's, it's, if it's not purposely the theme, it's certainly the theme that people are talking about and trying to figure out. I mean, you came to the annual meeting on the cusp of a year where hospitals had their worst margins probably ever, you know, probably yeah. ever in total throughout the country. And mm-hmm. so people, were, and, and a lot of it's driven by really difficult staffing costs, really difficult staffing challenges, and the leakage of revenue. So you got both mm-hmm. the leakage of revenue plus increased staffing costs, and you have payers that are very, very strong. So very little ability to raise rates, we're, we're as a nation, in terms of Medicare, Medicaid, I mean, the country is obviously $32 trillion in debt. So there's just limited dollars to increase yeah. reimbursement. So people are trying to figure out, just like banks did 15 years ago and replacing tellers for everything, just like you know, so many other industries have done, is trying to figure out where are the places where we can replace staff with machines or technology or other things. You know, where are those places? And there's doubtless a lot of them. And we see it in revenue cycle, we see it in other areas, but it still is very much a work in process. Yeah.
0: Well, and and that's something that we're seeing too, because, you know, in in our community, we have one one neurologist, one, that's it. Uh, And and this one neurologist serves close to 500,000 people in, in our market area. So we're having to go to a teleneurology, platform. And we we're spending a lot of time in in our clinics trying to change the expectations of patients. Because of unfortunately gone are the days where you you know, if you want to see a specialist in a timely fashion, you may not be able to see them in person. It may have to be a, a telehealth platform.
1: It, it, not even a question and it and it's somewhat it's it really a shame in a way. I mean, the beauty of only having one neurologist in the community, it makes very clear to everybody we better find a way to solve this. I mean, that's the only yeah. beauty of that because one is like, one, you might as well have none, but you're so held right. you're so I mean that might be the greatest person in the world, but you can't afford in any business, anything to have one leader, one person, one specialist, one anything just it just doesn't work. Because that, that person has a bad day and you're in trouble. That person gets hit by a truck. You're done. So it yeah. forces you to find other answers. The unfortunate thing is what we're finding is a lot of those answers are are not optimally developed as of yet. You know, so when my parents badly need a telehealth visit half the time, because there's not that really sitting down and visiting with somebody and seeing what's going on, half the time, it seems like that telehealth visit misses half of it, and my parents end up in the emergency room again. It's yeah. not and that's not that's not that's not a negative on the doctor. That's just a negative on it's just not as good as some of the other ways of doing things. Right. And it, and right. it's, it's, but we need compromise. Of course, when you have, I mean, neurologists are, tr- are tremendously short, behavioral health, psychiatrists, psychologists mm-hmm. are tremendously short, just a lot of areas. We're very, very short and trying to figure out how do we get past that?
0: Yeah. Well, Hey Scott, this has been a blast because, you know, getting to talk to you and the, you know, the, the scope of what you get to see in here, you know, uh, I really appreciate the fact that you were able to bring that to to my audience to to share any final words any final thoughts uh, before we close out
1: no i think though so. of course i say no but of course i'll have some but the thing <laughs> dr stevenson one one it's a pleasure to visit with you and thank you so much for making this so comfortable and and, and such a pleasure the, the thing that i find fascinating is so many solutions. I mean, there are solutions that are right in front of us that are so clear we have to fix them, but but nobody seems to have the willpower. There's right. there's challenges with the medical boards, there's challenges with the government to fix some of the issues just producing more doctors. The, the situation of one neurologist for five hundred thousand people is just a travesty. I mean yeah. the, the the flip side to all this is at least and some of this is sticky and challenging is the old phrase is necessity is the mother of invention. So so sooner or later, the good thing about this is because all of us are healthcare consumers, we're not doing healthcare for others. So what happens mm-hmm. is your family, your family sooner or later, somebody in the family is gonna have dementia, or Alzheimer's or something where you need a neurologist. We, and that's that's not that's not good, but that's just no. the reality. The, the it beauty is. of healthcare is in some ways it can be quite democratic where because we all are gonna have the problem, it, it's we can't say not having a neurologist is their problem, not my problem. And in some ways, it's all of our problem because we all, you know, there's a VIP thing in healthcare where some of us get better access than others, but certainly there's just not enough doctors to do that. So it's all of our problem. And hopefully that fact that it's really all of our problem will lead some of this to the necessity of the mother of invention concept and figuring out ways to solve some of these problems because all of us are gonna work through subpartel health visits till that gets better. And it's gotten a lot better in a lot of places. Oh, yeah. and, and 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 when you see that scarcity, I mean that's just scary because then you end up in a situation where your family's looking, where's the coastal neurologist I can find? He's four hours away. She's four hours away. I got to get my family to four hours away to, to see that. And that just is an impossibility for a lot of families too. And to yeah. do so in any kind of follow-up and so forth. But but what a what a debacle. But but I'm hoping that that challenge and the starkness of those challenges will cause people to find solutions. So we're hopeful.
0: Yeah, well, well, me too. Scott Becker, Becker's Healthcare, thanks for joining me on I Don't Care today. It's been great having you. Uh, Like I said, look forward to seeing you in November when I come up for the CEO CFO Roundtable.
1: Dr. Stevenson, thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Take care. Everybody just wrapped up yet another day uh, with me on I Don't Care. Uh, and we'll look forward to seeing you soon. Take care.